0: Welcome, everyone, to the Inspired Jewish Woman podcast, a place to come together to meet other passionate Jewish women from around the globe. We here value unity, and we come together from different backgrounds, places, and stages in life. We focus on what unites us, being a Jewish woman. We believe that every woman has a beautiful and unique light to shine to our community and to the world. In these podcast interviews, We find the light in others, and we learn from everyone. These are the topics that matter most to you and empower you to be the inspired Jewish woman that you want to be.
1: Enjoy the podcast. Welcome, everyone, to our weekly installment of some incredible inspiration from different women. Every week we have a different guest. And this week's guest is a personal favorite of mine. She's my, my personal cheerleader sometimes. I have no words to describe what I feel about Renee Ferreira. And I feel really excited about this topic in particular, which is keeping the traditions alive because I feel like Renee, she lives that. That's her life. When I first was introduced to Renee a couple of years ago, I didn't really know who this woman was. It took a while to really, really understand that this woman's life is all about keeping the traditions alive. And it's not an easy topic. It's not an easy conversation. And and in talking to Renee this week and having a heart to heart about this topic, there were tears and there were emotions. And it's not just like this pretty picture of like, we're going strong we actually have a lot of fears. What's the next generation gonna take with them? How are we passing this on? We're gonna to need to put down some roots. We're gonna to need to do something really, really powerful in order to pass our fabulous traditions onto the next generation. So that's why I feel really passionate about this conversation. And I'm excited to dig deep with you, Renee. And I want you to feel comfortable to really just open your heart and share because, I mean, there's so much that is inside of you that I feel needs to really get into our minds and into our hearts. So welcome, Renee. I'd love for you to just introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Renee Ferreira.
2: And I was born and raised in Portland and raised in Sephardic congregation. Both of my parents are Sephards. All four of my grandparents are from the island of Rhodes, and was just raised in a Sephardic family and Sephardic traditions, and that's my introduction.
1: Yeah, well, Renee was telling me so much about her parents and her grandparents, and I see that the apple does not fall far from the tree. So I'm going to start with the first question, and the question really, you know, to you, Renee, and there's no right or wrong answer, but what does tradition even mean to you? Like when you think traditions, and I know like a lot of it has to do with the melodies, but how would you describe your take on traditions?
2: For me, Sephardic traditions, when I walk into the synagogue and I hear the melodies that we we use when we pray, they're the same melodies I was raised with. And they're different from the melodies I hear when I go to uh, Chabad or to Nevesh or or share any of the other synagogues, they're different. And the way we pray is different in the Sephardic synagogue. It's very, very participative. Everybody prays aloud the whole time. And during some of the holidays, the chazan at the front canter uh, in the Sephardic tradition, will stand up there and he'll point to different people to say different parts of the service. And and everyone's prepared to do that. It's just—it's just a warm, welcoming prayer environment. And when I go in here, call Nedre or the Nay Law Service or any of those that are done once a year, I cry because the melodies bring back all the memories of uh, growing wow. up in that in that congregation. Wow. Um, traditions are also the holidays, and uh, I remember we always had the holidays at my grandmother's house and my grandmother and grandfather always had specific traditions that we followed. When my grandparents were no longer able to carry those holiday traditions on, my mother, being the oldest of five children, took them on for our extended family. My aunts and uncles and cousins all joined us for the holidays at my parents' house. And then when they were gone and could no longer do it, we moved it to my house. So it's just been like generation after generation of following the traditions of the holidays. And then of course, I'm blessed by having women in my family who have what we call bendichos manos, which are called their blessed hands. And Mm. um, they know how to make all of these wonderful Sephardic dishes, baking and uh, entrees and side dishes and whatever. And they taught me how to do it.
1: Wow. You know, it seems like it's, it's the whole family gets in on, on these traditions at a certain point, right? It's not only for the women anymore. No, it's not. When, when we cook for
2: the holidays, m- both my, my male and female cousins come and help. Stop here
1: for a sec, because we're going to talk about the food soon. And I want to hear all the stories and the cousins and how it all transpired. But there were two things that you said to me when we spoke yesterday that I wrote down that really, really like, wow, those words were very powerful. The first thing was you said that when you go into synagogue and you hear the melodies, you said it lights your fire. And you also said that it lifts your spirit. And if I would give a definition to what traditions are all about, I'd want those words connected to it. Because the only way for us to be able to pass traditions on to the next generation is if it's something that brings us joy and it lights a spark inside of us. If we're feeling excited about it, somehow we'll make sure that it carries on. So when I heard those words, I mean, Renee, you may or may not realize this, but you have lit my fire. I can't imagine lighting your fire any more than it's already lit. (laughs) I love you too. I'm an excited individual, but I must say coming into the Sephardic world without knowing all the foods and the language and the prayers and the melodies. I mean, I kind of felt a little bit like an outsider. There was a lot of new. In fact, the night before my wedding to my 100% Sephardic husband, who's half Tunisian, half Moroccan, the night before my wedding, we had a Sephardic henna party. So just imagine, my family just got off the plane from Canada to Israel And we're all 100% Ashkenazi. Like when I did my DNA testing, it was on, you know, 23andMe, it was 100% Ashkenazic Jewish. Like you don't get more Ashkenazi than this, okay? And it was the night before the wedding. And all of a sudden, I see myself in my henna party with my husband's grandmothers, wrapping me in gold coins and materials. You know, I'm sitting there, you know, like not knowing what putting henna, slapping henna dye on my hands and blah, 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 blah. like, you know, the all the the hoopla. And my best friend who's also Ashkenazi, she came over to me, she whispered in my ear, Eve, are you sure you want to go through with this? <laughs> it was different. You know, so I must say that over the years, I've slowly become more and more comfortable to the point where Right now I feel so privileged to be a part of this tradition, to be carrying these beautiful traditions on that have gone all the way back to your heritage and I'm gonna pass it to my children. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to have that torch that you've given me, Renee, and it's really such an honor and a privilege. So the second question is, how would you envision the Sephardic future? You know, I I love dreaming. If you dream it, it could come.
2: (laughs) So let's dream. Being a practical person, uh, you know, if I'm going to dream something, I want to dream something that's actually doable. So, you know, we have years of Sephardic families who, uh, because we didn't have a a rabbi for so many years, um, their children all went to Sunday school uh, at some other synagogue. We didn't have one. Um, and uh, oftentimes they, they married Ashkenazi Jews and went to pray at other synagogues. And so um, we don't really have a groundswelling of young people coming up through our synagogue to carry forward our traditions that are Sephardic. And because we're Orthodox, the families who are Sephardic, they're no longer Orthodox. Um, A good many of them. Some are, but most of them are not. So, you know, so we have to look elsewhere for our future. You know, you don't have to be Sephardic to be a member of our congregation. Anybody can be a member of our congregation. My dream really is that they attract people who want to learn our melodies, who want to learn our culture, who feel the warmth and the love that we have in our congregation, because there really is a lot of that amongst our our whole congregation. It's a very welcoming place. They feel that and they say, I want to be a part of that. And I want to learn the traditions that the Sephardic culture offers. And that's my dream. That's that's where I'm hoping we're going uh, for our future. Because to be honest with you, if we are unsuccessful in doing that, we really don't have a future and it would, you know, be a shame.
1: It's amazing to be part of a dream that's unfolding. And there have been many moments in the past year where I've seen growth of our congregation when it was on Yom Kippur for Neila and there was the standing room only practically. I mean, we filled that large space that we expanded. And to see that happening is very sweet and it's encouraging because I think we're all with you in that dream for for vibrancy and continuity. So my third question to you is, if you had a message for Sephardic Jews or really any Jews out there to stay connected to their roots, what would that be? Find a home that you can
2: grow in. And I don't mean a home like where you live, but- Community. Community where- You can connect and meet the people and um, interact with them and learn from them and grow that way. That's that's the only way I know to do that. I mean, for me personally, I have the most wonderful family in the world Mm -hmm. and I can connect through my family anytime I want. It's, you know, they're there and and I'm not talking about brothers and sisters because I'm an only child. I'm talking about cousins uh, and aunts. I can connect with them and we have a shared experience, but if you don't have that shared experience, then you need to find it someplace. And the only place I can think of is through a a community resource like our synagogue.
1: Wow. Thank you. Thank you. And if I could add just a few words and something, a message that I would give to Jews out there all over the diaspora, all over the world in staying strong, it's really, it's envisioning ourselves as a Jewish people, as being part of this miraculous chain that has gone back thousands of years. And I look at every link as every generation and and the strength and the courage that it must have taken for every generation, for every person to choose in again and again and again. And the fact that we could still be alive and our doors open is nothing less than a miracle. But here's the thing, we're only as strong as our weakest link in that chain right we need to strengthen ourselves we need to see the chain as being part of this big picture and we can't lose sight of the big picture it's gone back so many thousands of years and god willing we have a, a ways to go to come to our completion to come to a better place for the whole jewish world so seeing yourself as part of that it really strengthens you because we all need to do our part And that's how I feel very strongly about keeping not only just alive, but really, really staying strong. It's so important. So now, Renee, I want to hear some of the stories. And there are so many great stories. I want to hear a little bit about your grandparents and some of the fights uh, over the food. And it's all about the food, I feel. So
2: Eve asked me when we talked yesterday what my favorite food was. And I told her, I use the and um, which are a puff pastry with spinach and cheese in it. And we eat them for Hanukkah and for Rosh Hashanah, Um, for Hanukkah for the oil and Rosh Hashanah for the spinach. But uh, in any event, this is a, a pastry that takes two days to make. And my mother used to make them for our family. Uh, for the holidays and they'd serve these boys and we'd start fighting over it we'd start counting how many each person had and, and telling them no you can't have another one because i haven't had as many as you and you know it we'd, we'd get into fights at the dinner table over it this one year my mother said to us enough already you guys eat these things like they're candy and you don't realize how difficult they are to make. Next year you're going to make them. And I'm sure she thought we would say, oh no, we appreciate you. We love you. Uh, so instead we said, okay, good. We want to learn. You come and teach us. And so that first year, my mother came to my house with all of my cousins, male and female, that were in Portland at the time. And she taught us how to make bayous de spinaca. And she taught us the old-fashioned way, you know, you don't use a rolling pin to roll things out, you use your hands to open them up and you don't use a dough hook on a Kitchen Aid. you knead with your hands. So um, we improved the recipe and then we kicked her out of the house. We'll do it from, from now on. And that was probably 30 years ago and twice a year, we still get together and make de spinaca, me and my cousins. And it's not only just the food that makes it so special, but it's cooking together with my family and following these traditions. And, and I don't remember exactly how. Well, I guess a woman who wrote for the Oregonian food day contacted me because she wanted... Her name to, Her name is Dina Pritchett. Okay. Uh, she wanted to know what, what Sephardic potato latkes were, what, you know, what the sephards used for instead of potato latkes. So I told her about this recipe and about some of the stories and and that we get together with my cousins. And she came when we made Boyus. And she uh, took pictures. And she did an audio recording of us. And it played on OPB National Public Radio Weekend Edition um, on a Saturday in December, just before Hanukkah. It was many years ago. But um, Eve has the link if anybody wants to read the story, see the recipe and hear the interview. But it was, it was pretty special.
1: Well, Renee, I know, I know how much your family means to you and being that your parents are no longer here and your grandparents are no longer here. What's it like for you when you're in your kitchen with let's say your cousins or maybe some of your aunts and you're doing this? I mean, do you feel a strong presence
2: Eve, it's amazing. You see my my Aunt Sylvia is here with us. When the holidays come now, and she's in Los Angeles, and it's time to to cook for the holidays, I'm the one that she, she calls when she has a question about how to do something. Because she knows my mother taught me. And my mother was the best cook in the world. And so she calls, we talk about the recipe, and then we talk about my mother. It helps keep them alive in our mind. And that's true when we have the holidays. I sit here and I think about my parents, you know, for Passover now, Ron leads our Seder. It used to be my father. And I sit here and think about how proud my father would be to see his nephew leading our Passover Seder for us. And um, when we're cooking for any of the holidays, it's the same thing. I just,
1: I channel my mother when I'm cooking Sephardic food. Wow. There's a Jewish idea that when there's a holiday or a joyous occasion, I think there's three generations, like the past generations are with us. You know, they're no longer physically with us, but their souls are hovering and they're they're close to us and they're connected with us. So I guess when you're in your kitchen doing your thing and preparing for your holidays, it, it must be like a reunion of some of the past generations coming and saying, Renee, is that an eggshell? <laughs> okay. So that's really special. My grandmother, who'd passed away a few months ago, my babi gusha, she would always call me before the holidays and ask me, you know, Ivalet, did you make your hamantashen? Are you ready for Passover? Are you making gefilte fish? You know, she would ask me, like, it was important to her, just like your aunt calls you, it's so important to just know that you're passing this on. That is, it will stay alive after we're no longer here. Mm -hmm. So um, it's it's just very, very powerful. So you you told us about those flaky boyos, the spinach cheese. And tell us a little bit about some of the other foods, just in a nutshell. What are your favorite other Sephardic foods? I guess my other
2: favorite, what we call comida, which is a main course entree, is um, something that you love, Eve, which is eggplant which are uh, slices filled with uh, a hamburger mixture rolled and then baked with a little bit of tomato sauce. And that's one of my very favorite things to make, but there's a lot of steps. You know, Sephardic food is not easy to make. Um, I remember I was making these eggplants one time at Hillsdale and Mira, yeah, Mira Spivak was was over there and she came in and she watched what I was doing. And she said, my God, that's a lot of work. Um, But you can tell from the taste that it's- It's a Libra of love, right? I feel like Sephardic food is really a Libra of love. The cooking is so hands-on. This love that we have came from our grandmother who taught her children this love of family. And as a result, There were four girls in that family and all four of them raised their children to be connected. We live all over the country, Los Angeles, New Jersey. We're all over the country, but we're still in each other's lives. We're connected and that's a really important part of our family.
1: I had to share the joke, what you called those boyos espinaca, you called them your your little heart attack pills. Yes. I thought that was amazing. Something to know Sephardic cooking is not like, it's not like skimpy on the calories, okay? It's full on, tasty as ever, deep fried, you know, you go all in. And I just want to end with a quote that I wrote down in my notebook last year, Renee, when we were in Seattle together. I was doodling in one of the sessions and I wrote, we look to the past to build the future. And I think this is what it's all about. Right? Keeping our traditions and our heritage alive. We look to the past. We we lean on our grandparents and our parents and the memories and all of that. But really it's all in order to move it forward.
0: Thank you for listening to the episode with Renee Ferreira on keeping the traditions alive. Keep listening now for some more Passover inspiration. It was the week leading up to Passover last year. And you could just guess where I was. Yep, you guessed it correct. I was in my small Passover kitchen, cooking, cleaning, preparing for the holiday, and I was feeling pretty exhausted. Everyone was pitching in and pulling their load. The kids were helping, my husband was helping, but we were all overworked and overtired, Making Passover is not a small task. It takes a full team. My husband did something really special for me. It just lifted my spirits. He came into that little kitchen. He took out a hammer and nail and hung up a picture on my kitchen wall. It was a picture of a very special woman figure, Rebetzin in my life, Rebetzin Yamima Mizrahi one of my favorite Jewish women powerhouses and teachers and on the bottom of it of her picture it read bischut nashim nigalu avotenu it was this famous quote that our sages said that it was in the merit of the holy righteous Jewish woman that we were redeemed from Egypt and our sages went on to say that the future redemption that we're still waiting for will once again come through the Jewish women. Jewish women are power. <laughs> the strength of our faith is holding up our nation. We bring our passions, our excitement, our hopes, and our dreams for a bright future to the table. That word, emuna, faith, even the word, has the root word aim, which means mother. It has always been the women who have led our people with faith. The stories go back thousands of years. The Jewish nation have never had it easy throughout history. We've been enslaved, persecuted, humiliated, and killed just because we were Jews. Jews. When we think of the terrible stories of those times in Egypt, where babies were turned into bricks or thrown into the Nile River, cruelty beyond imagination. It's hard to even fathom this time, this devastation, the slavery in Egypt that lasted for over 200 years. It was the hardest, most backbreaking slavery of our bodies and our spirits the evil paro couldn't handle how even though we were enslaved and oppressed we still stayed strong and clung to our faith and our beliefs we carried on having children during these terrible dark times and we were blessed and we multiplied we were fruitful at that time jewish women were giving birth to six babies at once Paro feared that we were getting too strong and powerful. And his astronomers saw in the stars that a Jewish baby boy was going to be born that would grow up to lead the Jews out of Egypt. Paro decreed that terrible decree that all Jewish baby boys must be killed. Paro told the Jewish midwives, Jochebed and Miriam, also known as Shifra and Pua, to kill all the baby boys at birth. Yochaved and Miriam didn't listen to Paro's decree, they didn't fear him, they only feared God. They continued to take care of the babies, both the boys and the girls. When Paro called them back and asked them why they were not following his orders, they bravely said, the Jewish women are so lively and so full of energy. When we come to assist them in a birth, they have already delivered. When Paro realized he could not rely on the midwives to do the job, he implemented other plans. He had his Egyptian guards throw all the baby boys into the Nile River. Well, there was this figure, Amram, very public figure, a leader in the Jewish world. He was Miriam's father. He couldn't take the pain and suffering that he saw any longer. And he decided to divorce his wife, Yecheved in order to stop having children during these awful times. All the adults were sad, but they followed him. They followed suit. They agreed that it was the right thing to do. They couldn't just carry on. Everyone divorced their wives. Now Miriam, who was only a few years old at the time, was young, but she knew she had to speak up. She came to her father and said, "Father." With all due respect, your decree is even worse than Paro's decree. Paro decreed against all baby boys, but your decree is against baby girls as well. One day, God will take us out of this slavery. We need to ensure that we have a nation for God to redeem. It must have been very humbling to be put in his place like that, but Amram accepted the rebuke. He said, the child is right. We will continue to remain married and bring children into the world. Hashem will help us. We must do our part. And the outcome, it's not in our hands. Amram remarried his wife Yochabed, and everyone in the Jewish nation followed suit. Life carried on through all the turmoil and hardships and pain around them. Miriam knew in her heart that her parents, would be the ones to have a special baby boy that would lead the Jewish people out of Egypt. And that very same year, a baby boy was born to her parents, Amram and Yechaved. And when this baby came into the home, it was filled with a bright light that showed how special he was. Happily, Amram kissed Miriam on her head He said, my daughter, your words are coming true, your prophecy. Well, they hid the baby, Moses, for three months, but they couldn't hide him any longer. It was too dangerous. And Miriam watched her mother make a small basket, a teva. She spread clay on the inside and sticky tar on the outside. Yocheved, the mother, lay her precious baby inside the basket and took the basket down to the river. Putting the basket into the water, Miriam's father, bitter and sad and angry, said to Miriam, where is your prophecy now? Miriam ran down to the Nile River and hid behind the bulrushes, never taking her eyes off of that basket with her baby brother inside. What would happen to her baby brother? She watched with complete, unwavering faith. An excitement to see God's miraculous plan unfold. And of course, it did unfold. Just then, Paro's daughter, Batia, the princess of Egypt, was coming down to the river with her maidservants. Batia sees the basket. She stretches out her hand. Another miracle happens, and her arm reaches till the basket. Batya draws the basket in from the water. That's actually where we get the name from Moshe. Kimin Hamayim Mishitihu. From the water I pulled him out. And she sees this beautiful baby boy. And even though her father decreed that all Jewish boys must be killed, Batya's heart told her to protect and keep this one alive. She decided she would do whatever she could for this baby. She brings wet nurses for him to eat from. He refuses and continues to cry. Miriam, the sister of the baby, emerges from behind the bulrushes. And she boldly suggests to Batia the princess that perhaps he will only eat from a Jewish woman. She asks if she could run and call a Jewish mother possibly to feed the child. And Batya, desperate to please and calm down this child, says, quickly, go. Miriam is filled with gratitude and happiness as she runs to call her mother. Batya requested that Yocheved take the baby and nurse him in her own home for two years and then return him to the palace. The princess offered to pay Yochaved to be the wet nurse for this child, her very own child the hands of god is so present every step of the way miracles upon miracles pave every step the jewish women in egypt pulled their men through difficult times the men were depressed downtrodden and exhausted as i'm sure the women also were but the women used their strength their faith they pulled themselves through this time They had these small copper pieces that they used as mirrors. They used it to beautify themselves for their husbands. They came to the fields to meet their husbands. Their husbands were so downtrodden, they wouldn't even come back home. And the women brought these men back to life. The women drew so deeply upon their sacrifice, their misirat nefesh, and their womanly intuition. And they stayed steadfast in their faith. These copper mirrors were very precious to God. And they were later used in creating the kior, the vessel for purification that was used in the tabernacle. The long awaited day has come for the Jews to leave Egypt. You can just imagine the stress, the chaos, not knowing exactly what was lying ahead. So much uncertainty and, of course, excitement. Now, if you got to grab just a few things before moving on from your life to a new future, what would you grab? The Jewish woman grabbed their tambourines and their musical instruments to sing and dance and praise God for his miraculous salvation. They had been waiting for this moment their entire lives. They waited with so much faith, and the moment had finally come, when they were ready. Since this time in Jewish history, the drum or the tambourine has become the symbol of the Jewish woman's faith in the coming redemption. The Torah states how Miriam the prophetess and all the women danced with their musical instruments after the splitting of the sea, as it says in the book of Bishalach, And Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the drum in her hand, and all the women went out after her with drums and circle dances. And here we are today. Women. Women. Still using so much sacrifice in keeping our faith strong, keeping our families on the right path, holding on to our Judaism, using Herculean strength as the culture and world around us makes it not so easy to stay true to our values and beliefs. So much has changed and yet nothing has changed We sometimes don't realize how difficult our situation is. We'd rather not think about it. But we are standing on the brink of change, of the ultimate redemption. And once again, it will be us, the women that will be leading the way. The Kabbalist, the Ari, from the 16th century once said that the generation before the coming of the Mashiach will be the reincarnated souls from the generation of Egypt. Ladies, it is time. We are ready. I'm wishing you all a beautiful, beautiful Passover. We are the descendants of these women who used these copper mirrors in Egypt, who used sacrifice, had such hopes and good intentions, and survived, survived and thrived. We have that in our DNA. My dear sisters, know who you are. Know where you come from. Know your power and your essence. Know that no matter how old or young you are, no matter your size, your education, your skin color, your abilities or disabilities, your customs or your level of religious observance, you, yes, you, you matter and you are essential. Do not underestimate the light and goodness that you bring into the world. Do not underestimate your part in the coming of the final redemption. Thank you so much for joining me. Chag tasher v'sameach. Happy Passover. Sending so much love to all of my sisters all around the world. Take care.